Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Rabello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle Radio, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and also from around the world. This week, Russia holds a scaled-back version of its Victory Day Parade. Victory Day in Moscow was a notably less exultant affair. The columns of gleaming modern armour which have thundered across Red Square in recent years were replaced by a single World War II vintage T-34 tank. We also report on community policing in the United States, hear about Chile's constitution and examine why Saudi Arabia wants to launch a new English-language channel to rival Al Jazeera. Plus, it was Eurovision week after all. Eurovision for me, it's the party. It's crazy. Then somebody had to make crazy things. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rebello. So welcome to The Curator. Russia's Victory Day Parade was a more minimalist affair this year, with the exception of a vitriolic speech from President Putin. Monaco's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, dissects the meaning behind the words. Just after 11pm on May 8th, 1945, in an army officer's mess in Berlin, Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, chief of the armed forces high command of Nazi Germany, was presented with a document by Marshal Georgi Zukov, whose Red Army troops had hung the hammer and sickle off the ruins of the Reichstag six days previously. The war was over. Indeed, another German general, Alfred Jodl, had surrendered to the Americans the day before in Reims. Hitler was dead. The rest was paperwork. Zhukov asked Keitel if he understood the document. Keitel said he did and requested 24 hours grace to inform German units still fighting. Zhukov told him to get on with it. Words to that effect anyway. Keitel removed a grey leather glove and signed. It was after midnight in Moscow, so it was that May 9th became known in the Soviet Union, thereafter in Russia, as Victory Day. Victory Day evolved over the decades into a triumphalist military procession. And on balance, fair enough, when the Soviet Union slash Russia reminded itself and the world of the astonishing sacrifices made by Russians in defeating European fascism in the 1940s, it had a case. Perhaps 27 million Soviet citizens died to defeat Nazi Germany, and many millions more endured scarcely imaginable hardship, deprivation and trauma with heroics. Stoicism. This year, however, Victory Day in Moscow was a notably less exultant affair. The columns of gleaming modern armour which have thundered across Red Square in recent years were replaced by a single World War II vintage T-34 tank. The ranks of soldiers were markedly thinner. And President Vladimir Putin's keynote speech was several degrees weirder, as this week's Foreign Desk Explainer now proposes to demonstrate with a brisk game of what he said, what he meant. The rules of what he said, what he meant are not complicated. You will hear a choice excerpt of Putin's oration voiced with due solemnity by Monocle's senior correspondent and Eurovision desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, i.e. what he said, followed by your correspondent outlining what he meant. 
So, what he said. A real war has once again been unleashed against our motherland. But we have repulsed international terrorism. We also protect the inhabitants of Donbass and ensure our security. What he meant. This whole thing was supposed to be over in 72 hours, 96 tops, which is why, 15 months later, I'm frantically trying to reframe the failure to take the ruins of one small Ukrainian town as basically the siege of Stalingrad. For us, for Russia, there are no unfriendly hostile peoples, either in the West or in the East. Like the vast majority of people on the planet, we want to see a future of peace, freedom and stability. Starting a pointless war is a lot easier than turning Russia into a prosperous, productive and collegiate country and nobody ever got put on a postage stamp for quietly overseeing a steady incremental increase in GDP. We believe that any ideology of superiority is inherently disgusting, criminal and deadly. Do you? Do you though? However, here we go. The Western globalist elites still talk about their exclusivity, pit people and split societies, provoke bloody conflicts and upheavals, sow hatred, Russophobia, aggressive nationalism, and destroy family and traditional values that make a person a person. Honestly, this cancel culture, you can't even wreck your nation's economy, betray its future and usher a generation of young men into the meat grinder for absolutely no good reason without the woke mob coming for you. These days, we see how in a number of countries, memorials to Soviet soldiers are ruthlessly and cold-bloodedly destroyed. Monuments to great commanders are being demolished and the memory of true heroes is being erased and slandered. I am completely at a loss to understand why the now free citizens of formerly captive nations do not wish, as they stroll to the shops, to gaze upon statues of the people who deported their ancestors to the salt pile. Such desecration of the feet and victims of the victorious generation is also a crime. An outright revanchism of those who cynically and openly prepared a new campaign against Russia, who gathered neo-Nazi scum from all over the world for this. Their goal, and there's nothing new here, is to achieve the collapse and destruction of our country. If you think being turned into a morally and actually bankrupt pariah state is bad, if anything happens to me, it'll be even worse. For us in Russia, the memory of the defenders of the fatherland is sacred. We keep it in our hearts. We pay tribute to the members of the resistance who bravely fought against Nazism, to the soldiers of the Allied armies of the USA, Great Britain and other states. We remember and honor the feet of Chinese soldiers in the battle against Japanese militarism. Wanging on about World War II plays nearly as well here as it does in the UK. The stuff about the Allies makes me sound generous and statesmanlike, and if I throw the Chinese a bone, they may not yank my leash just yet, if you'll forgive the somewhat back-to-front metaphor. We're standing on Red Square, on the land that remembers the combatants of Yuri Dogoruki and Dmitry Donskoy, the militiamen of Mining and Potsarsky, the soldiers of Peter the Great and Kutuzov, the parades of 1941 and 1945. I'm still clinging, arguably somewhat optimistically at this point, to the idea of being recalled more as Joseph Stalin than Slobodan Milosevic. За победу! Ура! For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller.
Now, police in American cities are trained for all kinds of eventualities they face in the job. But never before have they come together for a national training conference on the best ways to interact with their own communities. That all changed last week at the Police Set Conference in Atlanta. Monaco's Chris Charmack was there for The Urbanist, and in this highlight we hear from the conference organizer and civil rights leader, Markel Hutchins. I wanted to take you back to... The genesis of this moment, perhaps for you, it kind of started 10 years ago when you started to have a shift in terms of feeling that it is important to work with police. You weren't always that way. You were somebody who led protests and marches before. Tell me about the moment where that changed for you. It changed only when I saw that it wasn't working. It's not that I have a change of philosophy. I'm still very much passionate about civil rights and social justice. Law enforcement officers that violate the law should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. I still believe in marching and protesting. I just think that we have a different path when it comes to law enforcement and communities at this moment in time. The number one civil rights issue in America today is crime. More people in disadvantaged communities are victimized by crime than any other social injustice that we face. So as a civil rights advocate, as one who believes in Dr. King's vision of a beloved community, crime has got to be front and center. So when I started to really witness that the marching and the protesting, while they allow us to express our anger, our pain, our hurt, which is very, very real, and there's some value in it, I didn't see enough solutions coming from that. Working in collaboration with law enforcement gives us at least an option, an opportunity to talk to those people who are in positions to make a difference. When I was leading a lot of protests and demonstrations, law enforcement oftentimes, they didn't like me. They were scared of me. They didn't want to meet with me. They didn't know what to expect. So I couldn't accomplish a whole lot. I mean, I could rally a crowd. I could, I've led some of the largest civil rights demonstrations in Atlanta's recent history. I probably speak and preach with the best of them, and I certainly organize well, but it wasn't changing things. And I think as I've got a 16-year-old son, I'm a single father, and when my son started to get closer and closer to teenhood, I started to realize that I needed to make a real difference, a real impact on these issues. Instead of just raising the social injustice, I had to actually promote a sense of justice, and that's kind of where the shift has been in me. So that's the shift in you. Perhaps I could ask then where you feel we are today when it comes to that trust in policing within communities 10 years on from when you kind of started down this path. What is the state of that in your mind today? You know, I think we have unfortunately taken a step back in a lot of ways because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the other tragic incidents, Tyree Nichols, etc., where police officers just do incredibly reckless things that hurt the profession, that hurt our communities, that hurt public safety. It has taken us a step back. But I think every dark moment uh, has a potential for light. And what we're doing now is choosing to light a candle rather than curse the darkness. Our nation will emerge from this moment. Law enforcement will be better. Our communities will be safer because of the period that we have gone through. And I see, you know, there's a change. Uh, there's a shift in law enforcement. Here I am, a civil rights leader, mentored by all the civil rights icons, who a decade ago was marching on cops. And here I am now able to convene a national conference with hundreds of law enforcement leaders from every state in this country 
plus the U.S. Virgin Islands, along with senior officials from the Department of Justice, the FBI, ATF, etc. Law enforcement wants to work collaboratively with communities. We just have to expose them to the best tools and resources to connect with the people that they really need to collaborate with. And what is your sense, to be frank, of to what extent communities want to work with law enforcement, to put it on the other side? What's been your experience in that to try and convince them of the importance of it and not giving up maybe on law enforcement? Three years ago, I knew we needed to do something different. So I created National Faith in Blue Weekend to unite communities along with law enforcement, utilizing the faith-based community to do so. And much to my surprise, Faith in Blue grew within a three-year time frame to be the largest and most consolidated police community outreach project in American history. What that taught me is communities absolutely want to work with law enforcement. They see the value in it. There is, if you will, a false narrative, and I don't like to use that terminology because it's been so politicized. But the truth is, there has been a false narrative that somehow, some way, the majority of people in communities, particularly in minority communities, don't support law enforcement. That is simply not true. More than 70% of African Americans and Hispanic Americans want the same or more law enforcement. We don't want less. We want to be policed with fairness and justice and equality. We don't want to be profiled or mistreated, but we recognize that law enforcement has a critical role to play in ensuring safe communities and quality of life. People want good law enforcement, and I think law enforcement wants to be good. What we are doing through this conference and throughout the body of work that we're putting forward is we're offering pathways forward. Our path to progress around these issues don't lie in the things that we differ about. They lie in the places where we agree. You're listening to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Ribello. In Chile, the far-right parties have emerged as the leading political force in an election to choose members of the advisory board tasked with drafting a new constitution. Earlier, Vincent McAvinney was joined by Fiona McCauley, an expert in Latin American politics, to find out more. Professor McCauley, thank you very much for joining us. Firstly, this constitution dates from the Pinochet days. So why hasn't it been rewritten previously and why is it being redone now? Okay, so it survived through the transition to democracy after 1989, uh, partly because the constitution rather cleverly uh, made electoral arrangements that overrepresented the right persistently in Congress and particularly in the Senate. Um, so it wasn't until 2019 that street protests, mass protests indeed, um, pushed the then conservative president, Sebastian Piñera, to actually ask the country whether it wanted a referendum on a new constitution. They voted yes, we want a new constitution. Uh, a constitutional assembly was set up. Um, they drafted a new constitution. Um, and rather shockingly, um, at the end of last year, although 78% of people said we want a new constitution, they then turned around, 62% said, well, we don't want this one, um, which left the new president, who is pretty left wing, Gabriel Boric, in a very difficult situation. So the country had to then figure out what to do with the rejection of this drafted constitution. And they essentially have said, we've got to go back to the voters, we've got to elect a new council that will write a different new constitution. And what we have seen yesterday is rather surprisingly a swing to the right, even you could say to the far right, uh, which means that Chile now has a left-wing president in power 
but is having to deal with a constitutional council dominated by the by the right and the the, the further right um, on what is the most significant constitutional change in decades. So what went wrong for the president with the far right doing this? Was there just complacency perhaps in, in the left in the country in his own bloc? It's difficult to say, but I think that there are a number of factors. The first is that we can see from the results yesterday for the 50-person the uh, constitutional council that the vote for the centre, the traditional centre parties like the Christian Democrats, just simply collapsed. So we now have a polarised situation. Essentially, the left got the percentage vote around 25% that Boric had got in the first round. Now, why did the right and the far right do so well? I think it's partly private funding that was thrown at the electoral campaign. About 90% of private donations went to the, the, the first of all, the no vote um, for the previous draft of the Constitution and undoubtedly behind this new right-wing move. It's, it's a highly polarised situation. This is not actually new in Chilean politics. Um, typically, Chilean politics is described as being, you know, politics of three thirds. There's always a third goes to the, the left, to the centre and to the right. What's more surprising is how far right this has gone. But the, the I think it's the shock that was delivered to the right by what was in the rejected draft constitution. And there has been a reaction by a very organized sector of Chilean society, for example, the further right elements of the of the Catholic Church, Opus Dei, which is actually highly influential in business um, and legal circles in Chile and has been for a number of decades now. Uh, for example, one of the most voted candidate for the Republican Party, which has swept the board in this recent election, is a very prominent member of, known to be a member of Opus Dei. There are a number of key elements here. Environmental protections in the previous draft constitution, gender issues, um, and certainly business interests. So it's going to be a mixture of cultural questions yeah. and business interests which have driven this push to the right. There is, There are other reasons as well, I think, why they got um, such a huge vote, and that's to do with uh, 3.8 new million new voters who have come onto the electoral register um, in the last year. And that's a different issue altogether. So in terms of specific provisions in this new constitution that's being uh, going to be redrawn, what do you think the far right uh, want to put into it? What do they want to remove? Okay, I think they will, first of all, want to remove the environmental protections that were in the previous draft constitution. They don't want rights given to nature, uh, protections to rivers, forests, mountains that would preclude business interests from continuing with mining, logging um, and other forms of environmental extraction. Um, the protection of indigenous rights is clearly closely linked to that. If there's a 13 percent or so indigenous population in Chile, of course, they, those people live in areas where there are significant interests in natural resources. The cultural issue, again, a resistance to acknowledging Mapuche and other indigenous groups as, as having sort of language and, and land rights in particular. And then I think there's a gender issue that's undoubtedly going to come up because we see the far right in Latin America and elsewhere engaging in culture wars, particularly around sexuality, 
and reproductive rights. So there will almost certainly be an attempt to recriminalize abortion, which was partially decriminalized in the last few years. Um, and that would be reverting to the situation that Chile had had, or in fact did have under the 1980 constitution, but was changed by law in 2017. So I think it's going to be gender, environment and culture. Mm. And just finally, how you know this advisory board is going to draft this? I mean, is this a dead cert? Are they going to succeed? Are they going to get all they want in now automatically? And, and what's the public mood likely to be like? Well, they have the numbers. They have the uh, you know the three fifths um, majority to vote through articles um, because they elected thirty three out of the fifty seats, um, and they clearly feel that they have a mandate because they were elected um, to do this. So it's going to be very hard, I think, for. Um, any opposition to, to really gain traction, they, they have the numbers. So I suspect there's going to be very bitter and polarizing debate over the next uh, period as they debate these articles. But in the end, they have the numbers to vote through and approve certain controversial articles and they have an agenda and they're going to follow it. Now, Saudi Arabia's soft power push seems to know no bounds. It's driving hard to be a mainstream tourist destination. Its relations with the US, the UK, the EU and Syria are thawing. And now it wants to make the leap into international news. There are plans for a Saudi news channel to rival the likes of Qatar-based Al Jazeera. Bill Law is a Middle East analyst and editor of Arab Digest, and he joined Emma Nelson with more. If they want to model it on Al Jazeera, uh, then they would uh, presumably be doing a cover, a, a serious cover of not just Middle East, North African news, but but global news. And uh, from a uh, from a Saudi perspective, from a, a Gulf perspective, the question, of course, is that when you look at Al Jazeera English, one of the things that the Qataris got right was they, and I'm speaking here of English specifically, and not Al Jazeera Arabic, was they basically gave them pretty much the editorial head, and they said, you know, we're going to grant you that editorial freedom. Uh, of course, there were exceptions. The Altani ruling family uh, are not uh, going to pop up in any critical way, uh, or, nor, nor was there particularly acute criticism of the migrant rights issue in the run-up and uh, during the World Cup. That being said, Al Jazeera English has made its mark as a serious... Uh, broadcaster with uh, editorial integrity. The question, of course, that everyone is asking is, will that be the same in Saudi Arabia? And is the it answer possible? Is, yeah, it's, of course it won't. We All we need to do is, is look back at Mohammed bin Salman's relationship with media. And I'll take you all the way back to November 2017 when there was that roundup of about 200 ruling family members, elite business people, including three media moguls. So one of them, uh, Walid uh, Ali Ibrahim, ran NBC, which is the largest media organization in uh, Middle East and North Africa. Uh, the, the, the ticket, the get-out ticket, was turnover 60% of your company to the public investment fund, which is run by Mohammed bin Salman. And equally, Awalid bin Talal, his uh, Rotana entertainment uh, uh, sector was effectively turned over. So that was how you got out of jail. Uh, and in Al-Walid bin Talal's case, he was incredibly reports that he was tortured before he was released. So we know that, you know, uh, Mohammed bin Salman 
has a, what would we say, a rather interesting view of how media works. Then, of course, in October of 2018, Jamal Hashirji is lured to the consulate in Istanbul, brutally murdered, his body dismembered, and and uh, and. Now we come to the latest uh, in in in, in Mohammed bin Salman's uh, media empire that he's that he's banging together. And you think, well, why does he need uh, uh, this? Well, it's Mohammed bin Salman. There's never enough for him. And Al Jazeera has always gotten under the skin of the Saudis. The reason why there was this blockade, you remember the blockade back in 2017, the Emiratis were angry at the Qataris because of the Muslim Brotherhood connections. The Saudis were angry because of Al Jazeera. So that's still there. Tell us who's going to buy this thing, because what, you, what you've just described is a, is a full-out assault on journalism, which was the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah. And also, it, people can see very clearly through Saudi Arabia's huge soft power push at the moment, trying to bring tourism over for the first time in a mainstream capacity with astonishingly deep pockets. So which country or which which network is going to say, OK, we're going to start streaming this Saudi station in our hotel rooms, in our offices, in our newsrooms? Well, I think that, you know, it's the SMRG, which is Saudi uh, uh, Research and Media Group, SRMG, which, of course, is very close connections to uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, you know, they will be able to screen that, certainly in the Middle East and beyond. And don't forget that w- one of the uh, companies that's already in the SRMG is Al Shark, and they have a relationship with Bloomberg right now. So, you know, this has already been established. You're quite right, Emma, to point out that the soft power, the emulsifier of huge amounts of money, the purchase of sporting clubs, you know, Mohammed bin Salman is being rehabilitated, and media is very much a part of that rehabilitation. Tell us a little bit more, though, about uh, what this would mean for the likes of um, Al Jazeera. And also, let's not forget Al Arabiya, which is Saudi-owned, isn't it? And that operates in English and Arabic, is considered to be an international news channel, arguably doing what this new channel would try and do. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, you, you would think they're going to be competing one with the other. And let, 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 let's accept the reality that all media within Saudi Arabia is very tightly controlled primarily by one man, which is Mohammed bin Salman. I don't know how the, how the shape of this is going to... El Arabi has never been able to stand up to Al Jazeera. So, so I think in that sense, he said, OK, I want something that can really compete against Al Jazeera, and I will throw a lot of money at it. Uh, and I presume that he's going to try and recruit some pretty significant journalists in, rather the way he's recruited some, some footballers, in, <laughs> you know, with huge vats of money and golfers and that sort of thing. But I would say, if you're a journalist... Think twice. It's, Think a rubric, twice. it's a Rubicon that journalists would have difficulty crossing. Um, let's finally talk about the fact that it is uh, a year now since Al Jazeera's uh, correspondent Shireen Abu Akleh was, was killed. Tell us a little bit about what, what is the latest with her with her story. Well, as you say, it's one year uh, since she was uh, shot dead by an uh, IDF uh, sniper. Uh, it, it, there are very credible uh, reports here and and in the United States, and the FBI is continuing an investigation that this was not an accidental shooting, as the Israeli government in its internal uh, investigation decided it was, that this was um, a deliberate, targeted assault. Uh, Shreen Abakli was wearing a vest with press on it. She and her crew were standing very very much away from any gunfire. It's been established there was no gunfire near where she was shot and killed. Uh, the reaction, and she's an American citizen as well as Palestinian, uh, the reaction of the Americans has been, well, 
pusillanimous is a word I enjoy using once in a while. And pusillanimous is the response. And initially, Biden was, we will do something about this in very strong terms. Then gradually, as we learn with Biden, it sort of winds down and winds down and winds down. And, and the family is saying, how can this be? How can this journalist shot in cold blood? Uh, there be no accountability from from an American citizen, not not just anybody, an American citizen. So I think that's where this that's where it stands now. The family is continuing this very very brave and courageous fight. Her niece uh, Lena is 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 really carrying it forward. But you know, I doubt that justice will be found. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Join Marco Sippi for the menu. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions. You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan fry. A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice. It's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress. It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it. Premiering live every Friday at 2000 London time or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. You're with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio. I'm Carlotta Rebello. Flowers are blooming in temperate parts of the Northern Hemisphere, but spring takes on a different meaning in the far north. River and sea ice are thawing, and the Arctic's brief but vital construction season will soon begin. For architects and designers at the Cold Climate Housing Research Center in Fairbanks, Alaska, this window is an exciting time to install the prototypes they have spent the long Arctic winter tinkering with in their laboratory. Monocle Radio's Gregory Scruggs spoke with architect Aaron Cook to find out more about the unique challenges of designing for the cold. Our physical environment in Alaska is an antagonistic physical environment, so we deal with low temperatures, large storm seasons, and other climate-related challenges. It's also the forefront of the changes in climate that the world is seeing. So the Arctic is changing faster than most other regions in the world. So not only are we designing buildings for a difficult physical environment, we're also designing for a future that we're uncertain of. In what ways is the climate changing that affects the built environment, you know, specific communities that exist here in the region that you serve, and how is CCHRC helping those communities adapt to those changes? The biggest change to our region with regards to climate is not so much the temperature of the air as it is the the temperature of the ground and the sea. That's what affects our infrastructure more than anything else. If you are a person from a southern latitude, you know deep in your heart that the default status of the earth is warm. That even in the winter, if you dug a hole deep enough, you would eventually get through the frozen ground to thawed ground. And that's how you view the world. If you're an Arctic person, you know deep in your heart that the default status of the earth is frozen. And that even in the deepest summer, if you took a shovel and dug through 
the ground, you'd eventually get a hole deep enough where you'd get to the natural status of the earth. You'd find frozen ground. Those two worldviews are very different. All of our infrastructure in the Arctic is built on this idea that we need to keep the ground frozen for our infrastructure to continue working as it does. As the temperature rises and our permanently frozen soils melt, it is going to have catastrophic effects on our infrastructure. Just as catastrophic as if you were in Florida and everything under 18 inches of ground froze. It would have the same amount of damage to the infrastructure uh, where we live. And so that's daunting from an engineering standpoint. In addition to the land, we're experiencing differences in the sea that compound the differences in the land. While much of the world is concerned with, and rightly so, rising sea level, our primary challenge is not rising sea level yet so much as it is the disappearance of our winter sea ice. So for most of our history here, the ocean freezes every winter. That sea ice protects our coastline. And as that sea ice is forming later and later in the year, our coastline, especially in western Alaska, spends more of the year unprotected from fall storms. And because of that lack of sea ice and that increased vulnerability to fall storms, we're losing unprecedented amounts of coastline, some places up to 80 yards a year. The need for communities to relocate, it sounds like you have been working on some designs, some projects here at CCHRC to make that difficult transition somewhat easier for these communities. Can you tell me what you've been proposing and and where you've been doing that? Well, generally, we don't propose relocation so much as just provide technical assistance for tribes and communities that have elected to relocate. And there are a number of them in the state. When you are a coastal community that is facing advanced erosion due to climate change, you basically have three options. You can elect to relocate entirely while you can before your original site uh, is compromised or unlivable. You can also elect to defend in place and elect to construct seawalls and other, other types of protective measures. There's also an intermediary choice, and that is to do what is called a managed retreat. And that is to not necessarily relocate entirely, but to seek higher ground within your traditional community, your traditional lands. That last choice, the strategy of managed retreat, is the strategy that the community of Unilakleet is undertaking. And that is a long-term plan for all future development to be relocated above the current town site so that the town slowly and organically creeps up the hill, as it were, to safer ground. That is in contrast to a a relocation like, say, Moktavik or Shishmaref or Kivalina or villages that must move to an entirely different site. What that means, though, is all infrastructure that is built in Unilakleet should be part of that plan. It should be congruent with that plan. That means that if you're building a house in Old Town, it should be designed and it should be physically capable of being moved in that managed retreat scenario. And that's a difficult proposition from an engineering standpoint, to create a small house that's able to move when the time comes. 
up to higher ground. So what we've done with the, the community in Unocleat is worked together with them on a foundation of a small starter home that is built on skids and is towable up the hill to the new village site or to the new subdivision above Old Town. The foundation is designed to carry the load on three very large metal skis, skids basically, and the foundation above the skids is a three-dimensional space frame, so imagine a, a truss but in three dimensions with diagonal members that allow it to be towed from different directions and can handle both gravity loads, which is true for any truss, but lateral loads, which is not as common because you rarely have to tow a building horizontally in any direction. And so the truss looks a little different. With that base, then, you can put a house on top of it on a platform and know that it will be robust enough to be relocated. There are two competing issues in Unocleat. One is there's a, a housing crisis. There's a housing shortage. Uh, over a third of the housing units are overcrowded in the community. So it's very difficult to find a new home in the community. The other difficulty in Unilocleat is there's not a whole lot of wage employment. Jobs are scarce. There are no electricians or plumbers in the community, but there are plenty of equipment operators, carpenters, and laborers. And so how do you design a house for that particular set of conditions? Since there's not a plumber or an electrician, we decided that it would save a great deal of money if we built out the plumbed and electrical spaces ahead of time in a factory, or in this case, in our laboratory, as a proof of concept that it could be built in a factory. So we built a fully furnished kitchen, bathroom, and mechanical room in a container in our lab, and then closed the doors on the container and sent it a thousand miles by barge up to Unilocleat from the lab. Once it arrived at site, they placed the container with the bathroom and kitchen on the foundation, but then all of the rest of the house was built on site. It was built by local labor around the container. In the end, when the house is finished, you won't notice that the bathroom and kitchen were containerized at all. And the reason for that is we do the community a disservice if we address the housing crisis by exacerbating the lack of jobs. So it wouldn't do any good to completely make a modular house in the factory send the entire house to Unilocleat and call it good because then you've created a house but you've taken four jobs away from the community well-paying jobs and so with a semi-modular approach what we're trying to do is tease out the gaps in the capacity of the local labor force and leave all the rest of the jobs in the community Now, is there an argument that the period from roughly 1996 to 2006 was the golden age of British pop? Well, the journalist and author Michael Craig believes so, and in his new book, Reach for the Stars, he has spoken to an exhaustive list of the people who were there. Spice Girls, Girls Aloud, Steps, S Club 7, among others. Andrew Muller caught up with him earlier. I wanted each chapter to end if not on a high note, then certainly on something approaching comfortable with what had happened, I think. You know, mm. there's 20 years for a lot of these people since that happened. A lot of them are still going. Tom McKitten is still going. 
three of five still perform those songs as five, even though there's three of them. And they had possibly the worst experience fighting into band fighting, lots of mental health issues. People left the band before it came to an end and they don't regret doing it. You know, I made sure and asked Sean, who sort of went through a breakdown at that time, you know, does he regret it? And he said he doesn't. He just regrets not being able to deal with it in that moment because, as you say, it was a lot of traveling, a lot of work, a lot of schedules that were quite manic. There were a lot of magazines to be in. There were a lot Mm. of shows to be on. It's not like it is now. So I wanted to make sure that there was a roller coaster or the journey, as they say a lot in pop. (laughs) I wanted the end bit to at least be slightly up than down. When you think about the music of that period, what was special to you about it? This is about 1996 to 2006 we're talking about. And you write in the introduction, I think, of feeling at the time like it was necessary to be kind of a closet fan. For me, and where I was in my life at that time, I thought it was a bit too revealing about who I was, a sort of closeted gay man, to be like, I'm really into Girls Aloud or The Sugar Babes. So I was a bit older. I was going to like university later on and I was like, oh, I'm going to try out being like a Radiohead fan or <laughs> going to get really into Travis, which was weird. And then eventually I was like, I don't really care anymore. These are great songs. Three minutes, 30 seconds, big choruses, huge middle eights, key changes, lyrics that are about nothing and something at the same time you could project what you wanted them to be about plus as a bit of a like muso i really loved the girls aloud stuff i wanted there to be a full chapter about girls aloud because what xenomania the production team did and what they did was bonkers those songs shouldn't work there's a chorus a middle eight three verses each verse is different Each girl sang each line eight times in five different keys. They sort of (laughs) stitched them together in this country house in the middle of Kent. And they didn't sound like anything else at the time. And so when people get quite sniffy about pop, I like to remind them that those songs exist. If what you care about in music is how genius they are or like how thought out and how intricately put together they are, then there's nothing more than that, than those Girls Aloud songs. For the pop musicians of that period, when we think about them now, to what extent is it all defined, both for better and for worse, that this is really the last period of pre-social media mainstream pop? Totally. I think it is defining because some of that weight that comes in pop now, the lyrics are much heavier, the topics Mm. are heavier, people in interviews talk about heavier things. And as much as it is good to talk about mental health, I don't know if it's necessarily helpful for the pop stars to have to talk about it with a journalist or to have to tweet about it on social media or to have your fans sort of coming back with quite heavy stuff in reply. And that's quite a big burden, I think. And some of that has filtered into the pop itself, whereas before it wasn't as heavy maybe as it seems now. And I think the pop reflected that. And that's why I wanted an oral history format this time with the book is because I wanted the pop stars of that generation to be able to talk about what it was really like because they Mm. didn't really have a chance to at the time. The interviews weren't probing. And also how crazy it was and how fun it was and how it was like being at university for them in many (laughs) ways. It was this three-year, maybe five-year if you're lucky, period of just being a young, early 20-something, away from home, a bit of money, lots of parties, not being caught on 
social media like you are now you're not going to have fans standing in front of you with a camera just filming you i mean that's the thing that comes across weirdly for all the pressure and scrutiny that they were doubtless under and they were because some of these people the spice girls most obviously were just colossally famous in this period but not even close to the kind of scrutiny and pressure they would be under now where Mm. there is literally nowhere you can hide unless you just stay at home yeah and i think blue the boy band are a good example of that in a certain ways because Lee Ryan mm. said the controversial statements about 9-11 which he had witnessed while shooting a video with social media with everything now that band would have been done there was no coming back from that but at that time they sort of grew in popularity and it kind of defined them in a weird way but yeah there was I mean the Spice Girls were absolutely huge globally not just in this country you mm. know 23 million sales of that first album and i think when one direction came later who was sort of past the period of my book there was social media but at the same time it was social media that helped break them in a lot of ways because fans could tweet and find out where they were and they would all go and be there when they arrived and that hysteria grew and grew and grew and it grew online and it actually did sort of help establish them but the pressure of that on top of everything else must have been incredible. To put the book together, you do get to speak to pretty much everybody who was active in that period. How forthcoming were people generally? Did some people have to be talked into it or persuaded or was everybody pretty happy to help? Not really. So many of them are still going. So Mm. they were quite easy to find in a way because they've got (laughs) PRs, they've got managers, or they've still got an official website with like a little info email. So there was lots of emails just being like, I'm not sure if anyone's reading this, but I'm doing this book. I'd like to think that my reputation maybe as like a pop fan meant Mm. that I wasn't coming at it from a angle of, I want you to just come on and talk about how awful it all was. You know, I want to celebrate the songs. I want to talk about the fun angle. I want to sort of show the whole picture. So I think people were into that idea. I think the distance, the 20-year distance means that they've come to terms with it, maybe forgotten some of the really terrible times The ones that are still going, I think, miss that period, actually. Claire from Steps says it was like a gang of Mm. us all. You know, we'd all go to the same road shows. We'd all do the same TV shows together. We'd all be sort of backstage hanging out. There was like a camaraderie. And I don't think they have that now when they go and do their tours and things like that because there aren't as many places to go. There aren't as many pop acts. Well, just finally, and to put you on the spot somewhat, if you can pick one track from this period to play out, which one would it be and why? Well, the obvious one would be Reach Mm. by S Club 7 because that's where the title comes from. But... I'm going to go with Don't Stop Moving by S-Cop 7. I think S-Cop 7 epitomise, when people think of manufactured, slightly cheesy 90s pop, I think they think of S-Cop 7. And Don't Stop Moving, I think, is incredible. You're with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio. Next, we're off to Switzerland. Andrea Kracht is the sixth generation owner of the Bar Olac, one of the world's most iconic luxury hotels with a 175 year history. This week, he is a subject of our travel interrogator, carried out by Monocle's editorial director, Tale Brulé, for the concierge. They sat down together in Zurich to talk about running family owned businesses and why his customers keep coming back.
What are they looking for, though, whether it's the first time they've checked into the Burak or it could be the 500th time they've checked in with you as well? Because also I see so many repeat customers. Are they looking for what is still perceived as Swiss service, a Swiss five-star experience? Are they looking for the feeling of a family-owned property, which, of course, is at the top end of the market? What's drawing that guest <clears throat> time and again? I think we are dealing with a high-end clientele. And if they come the first time, you know, they travel to Zurich for whatever reason, there are many ways they make their reservation. We have, I believe, over 140 or 150 distribution channels. So there are so many channels how you get someone staying with you. But I think the first intent is for a guest traveling to Zurich, you know, what do I like to expect from a hotel? And of course, if price is not so important, it's always important. But if you tend to be ready to pay a higher price for a good product, you end up with, I don't know, three, three four hotels in Zurich. And we are one of the top. I guess that's why. And we have a good reputation. We are there since six, uh, now seven generation, my, my daughter. So I believe that it's our reputation. And because we are family owned business, we are very conservative with prices. If you compare our prices to other luxury hotels around the big cities around the world, we are very conservative and I would say very fair towards the repeat guest. So at the end to your question, yeah, it's if somebody travels to Zurich and wants to stay in a, in a high-end luxury hotel, he has a good chance to end up at the Borlach. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering how are travel patterns changing and who's traveling? Because of course you saw this surge, many people said, okay, China's gone, a lot of the Asia market was gone for a while, but then just America seemed to fill in everything that Americans got out in the world very quickly. Have you seen the guest profile changing, and certainly from a Burlak perspective, but also from when you, when you think about also your role in relationship with leading hotels as well? Well, it changed a little bit in that sense that we had before pandemic less Americans, and after pandemic, the American market uh, rose again to, uh, I don't know the percentage, but we, we used to have at one time in the 90s and early 2000 up to 20% Americans, and it went really down below 10%. And now we are, I would say, around 15%. And among the whole leading hotels, the whole leading hotels market, over 50% of leading hotels reservations is the American market. So we know that the American market worldwide is very important. Just before we, we go, I want to maybe conclude on something which is maybe a cliche, something which is also a promise, and this is Swiss hospitality. And I'm wondering where you see things standing at the moment. I would say, and if you ask me, what is the rating out of 10? I would say it's very high. It's eight or nine, and I'm convinced about it. That's why we have over 30 leading hotels in Switzerland. And each of those hotels, if you stay there, you will have a very high-end service. 
compared to the, you know, all the other countries and leading hotels in those countries, we have a very high-end know-how. We still have this, I don't know if you can call it Swiss hospitality. You can maybe call it Swiss because we have the, these hotel schools. We have the best ones. Most of the staff are coming out of these hotel schools and it has a little bit this Swiss culture of hospitality which is so important, and you learn this in the hotel schools here. It comes out of that Swiss culture, and we have this in all our five-star hotels in Switzerland. And finally, today marks the first day of the long wait until the next Eurovision Song Contest next year. Ahead of yesterday's grand final, Monaco Radio's senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco caught up with a fan favourite, the Finnish rapper Karia. Let's have a listen. I love to make crazy things. I like so much electro music, metal music, pop music, and we just put together all the genres and make cha-cha-cha because I, I don't want to do the normal things. We have so many normal songs here. We don't want normal. Yeah, I think so. We need something new. Eurovision for me, it's the party. It's crazy. Then somebody had to make crazy things. This year, it's, it's me who do that. <laughs> well, and I'm so glad you did it. And so the song is a party song. It's about having fun, right? Because... You know, there's cha-cha-cha, there's piña coladas. I mean, it, it's quite mad, but in a in a beautiful way. For me, cha-cha-cha means freedom, almost, because every day of life, people have some problems and sad, sad and bad things happen. People are so busy when they go to work and they don't have the time to sleep when they have to wake up and go to work. And when we can come in, in Finland, uh, many people want to go to party and... They want to forget all the bad things and bad things. And uh, easy style, it takes some <laughs> alcohol, maybe pina colada. The uh, sales of pina coladas are going up in Finland, I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like pina colada. It's great drink for me, but now I don't... Can, I, I can't now drink any alcohol drink, only non-alcohol. But uh, in the song, yeah, for me, it's the freedom. I think so, because people... Always, not always, but all people, many people think about it. Can they go to dance for dancing if, if they don't can't dance? Uh, I think so. All people can dance if they want to dance. They don't have to think about it, what the friends or family thinking. Is that good dancing or something like that? Just do it. <laughs> many people need first alcohol, then they do that. But for me, you don't have to do that. I like that. I'm a bad dancer, but I will dance anyway, so I don't care. So that's excellent. And and tell us about your style. I mean, I'm fascinated by your outfit as well. I mean, your green, lime green outfit. I don't even know how, how do you call that piece, like a bolero almost. Bolero, bolero, yes, yeah. a nice bolero. Uh, green bolero. Is that your style? I mean, do you like colors? I mean, it's really, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, my last color, what I have, I have the old uh, yellow outfit. But uh, Rasmus do that uh, yellow outfit. Then my team and me thinking about it, what we can do. Because I want to keep it. I want to keep it the yellow color. But uh, then we thinking about, okay, Rasmus do that. 
we have to change the color. And we don't know yet which color we do it. But um, then uh, my stylist, there is many good stylists, they thinking, okay, maybe carry a like green bolero. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they show me some pictures or something. Uh, do you like this? Do you like this? And I say, yeah, I like that. I like that. And then they send me some pictures and there is the bolero band. And the uh, first time when I see that I'm okay, it's me. I love it. I want to take that. Now I have the green bolero and everything. <laughs> and, and your nails are green as well. I can see it. Of course. The, the uh, earrings as well, maybe? Yeah. It's the mini me. Oh, really? This is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Katia, what's your uh, musical influence? I know you're a big fan of Rammstein as well, but do you have any kind of other Finnish uh, music artists that you were influenced as well? No. <laughs> in Finland, there is many great artists in Finland, but uh, I think so. I'm only, only, only uh, we don't have second career in, in Finland. I do only my things and uh, I like to uh, try uh, some different genres, put together drum and bass, jump up, metal, guitar. Cha-cha-cha maybe? Cha-cha-cha, exactly. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Carlotta Rebello. And join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle Radio. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. <laughs>